release the Kraken. sad. I was rooting for the Kraken. We will rebuild. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. I got the feeling that something ain't right. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right, here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Here I am. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is The Bradcast, as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A. Also in Red Bluff and Redding, California, on KFOI, Round Mountains KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, Eugene's KEPW. Lancaster, Pennsylvania's WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, Columbus, Ohio's WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFZ, down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, in Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's W-A-D-R and Minneapolis St. Paul's AM 950 KTNF. We also stream coast to coast and around the globe every day on the internet on the Progressive Voices channel. Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Burden Square Radio, and Detour Talk. Blanketing Planet Earth, five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us. All right, let's get this uh, grim and still breaking news out of the way here at the top of the show today before moving on to what I hope will be far more pleasant topics today. Or at least what suffices for far far more uh, pleasant topics, given what we've got to work with of late around here. Late last night, officials warned uh, Americans in the vicinity of the Kabul airport to leave immediately due to security reasons unspecified at the time, but suggesting an imminent attack there. The warnings came once again on Thursday morning, followed by, yes, that attack, and it was horrific. Two suicide bombers and gunmen attacked crowds of Afghans flocking to Kabul's airport on Thursday, transforming a scene of desperation into one of horror in the waning days of a massive, unprecedented airlift which has already moved some 100,000 American and U.S. allies out of that country following the recent Taliban takeover in Afghanistan. The attacks on Thursday killed at least 60 Afghans and 12 U.S. service members, according to Afghan and U.S. officials. The U.S. general overseeing the evacuation vowed the U.S. would, quote, go after the perpetrators of the bombings and warned that much that uh, more such attacks are still expected. 
in this story that, as I say, is still breaking as we go to air. President Joe Biden is expected to speak about the attack with uh, about the attack within the next hour or so. The uh, Islamic State group known as ISIS-K has now claimed responsibility for the killings. But General Frank McKenzie, head of U.S. Central Command, told Pentagon reporters in a briefing earlier today that while they are looking for those responsible 24-7, the attacks would not stop the U.S. from evacuating Americans and others and flights out of Kabul were continuing. He said there was a large amount of security at the airport and alternate routes were being used to get evacuees in at this time. U.S. officials say 11 Marines and one Navy medic were among those who died on Thursday. Uh, General McKenzie said another 15 service members were wounded. Officials warned the toll could still grow. More than 140 Afghans were wounded in the attack, according to an Afghan official. We will, of course, keep our eyes on that story as it develops, though I was happy to hear the general note that none of this would stop the evacuation. As I see it, all of this, everything that has happened from the Seemingly overnight Taliban takeover of the country to the horrific events at the Kabul airport on Thursday merely underscore why the pullout should continue after a 20 year war that should have been over years ago and arguably should never have happened in the first place. Uh, in any event, moving on for now to what we had hoped to cover on today's broadcast, given that. Well, never mind establishing democracy in Afghanistan. We now find ourselves fighting, incredibly enough, to maintain democracy in this country, which might have been easier had we not spent the last 20 years in foreign excursions. In any event, moving back to this country, I believe Sam Levine at The Guardian overstates the point somewhat in the headline, Quote, the data proves it. 2020 U.S. election was a remarkable success. Okay, I think that might be a bit of an overstatement, but the larger point of his article, I think, is true enough. And I believe it is worth noting today, a few months after every federal election, a little known federal agency he writes called the U.S. Election Assistance Commission or EAC. Have you heard of them, Desi Doyen? I believe I have. Yeah, I've mentioned them once or twice. Anyway, <laughs> uh, they release a trove of data. After elections like this, and uh, they collect uh, information from all 50 states on what happened in the election. The survey this year offers one of the clearest pictures of the nuts and bolts of the election. Things like how people voted and registered, the demographics of poll workers, provisional and mail-in ballot rejection rates. It is a report card of sorts, writes Levine, and for the people who study how elections are run, it's a Bible of useful data. Now, this is true. Sadly, the EAC, which, as we have reported for years, is uh, basically a disaster, has been a disaster since its inception uh, from the Help America Vote Act of 2002 when it was created. That's the uh, post Florida 2000 measure, which, among other things, allocated billions of dollars to entrench vulnerable and unverifiable computer voting systems across all 50 states in the union, which I've also talked about once or twice on this show. I believe you have. 
Well, it, uh, it doesn't actually look at uh, the, these, uh, this report, the data that is put out by the EAC after elections. They don't actually look at whether the votes were counted as cast on those systems, as tabulated on those computers. Uh, but they do offer data about some of the other points worth noting in postmortem after American elections, much of which has been understudied, frankly, and underanalyzed and underreported this year thanks to the Donald Trump-led GOP effort to steal the 2020 election instead. That's what we have been spending the bulk of our time on uh, uh, since, uh, since November. The EAC's survey for the 2020 election came out last week. According to Levine, it provides unambiguous evidence of what a remarkable success the presidential election was against all odds, at least by the specific yardsticks being used here to measure it in any event. On election administration, basically. Uh, correct. Nearly every state recorded an increase in voter turnout. That's good. Overall, more than 67 percent of American citizens uh, of, uh, of voting age voted in the election, which the EAC reports is a record high, even though 67 percent, frankly, seems embarrassingly low to me, especially for an important election, uh, presidential election in the quote unquote world's greatest democracy. The best that we can do is 67 percent. Really? Apparently so. And apparently it's a record. Uh, still, writes Levine, in the midst of a once-in-a-century, hopefully once-in-a-century, pandemic, those are impressive numbers for this country. Despite fears that the surge in mail-in ballot, uh, mail balloting would lead to an increase in ballot rejections, the overall rejection rate remained the same. So that is both good news and bad news when we're talking about the rejection of mail-in ballots. Since absentee ballots are rejected at a far higher rate than regular ballots, uh, for example, cast at the polling place, uh, and just one of the reasons why I recommend voting in person whenever possible, rather than by mail, uh, at least when there's not a pandemic on that could kill you for doing so. And uh, and by the way, only if it is possible to cast a hand-marked paper ballot at your particular voting precinct. Otherwise, yes, use an absentee ballot, but try to deliver it in person. Barry Burden, the director of the Elections Research Center at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, describes the unchanged rejection rate of absentee ballots despite the huge increase in their use during the pandemic, along with the increase of overall voters as, quote, Basically an indicator of the success of the election. Election administrators, he said, managed to pull it off and support a record number of voters. Burden and other experts are now reportedly poring over the data to see which trends might stick in future elections, which ones have been a quirk of the pandemic and other unusual circumstances of voting in 2020. And there were a few unusual circumstances. <laughs> the survey shows, for example, that Americans dramatically shifted the way that they do vote. Only about one third of voters cast their ballots on Election Day on Election Day, choosing instead to cast their vote either by mail, about 43 percent or early in person, a little bit more than 30 percent. That's a sharp change from previous years when the majority of voters would cast their ballots at the polls on Election Day. And it's clearly one of the 
successful data points of 2020 that we did not see the huge maddening, outrageous, disenfranchising lines to vote at the polling places in uh, many places that we normally see them. That is clearly a success for 2020 over recent years. And of course, it's one of the reasons why Republicans are working so hard to make absentee and mail voting and early voting more difficult in the future because they love the long lines on Election Day that keep untold numbers of eligible voters from being able to cast their ballots. Burden, the expert, said uh, some surveys of voters have indicated that quite a few of them who voted by mail want to go back to voting in person. That's good. But lots who voted by mail, he says, for the first time, became fond of it, became aware of it, frankly, adding we're likely to have this multimodal system in place for years to come. Well, yeah, if only because at this rate, we're likely to have this covid pandemic in place for years to come. Ironically enough, if Republicans have their way. And the more they uh, push to keep everyone sick and dying from uh, COVID, the more likely it is that people are going to continue to vote by mail. Sorry, Republicans. Charles Stewart at uh, at MIT said he plans to dig deeper into the ballot rejection rates. And this is really what caught me caught my eye in this story. Among rejected ballots, about a third, a third went uncounted because of signature matching problems. Among those that were rejected, around 12 percent were rejected because the voter missed the deadline to return the ballot. But these are huge numbers of unnecessarily rejected ballots. I mean, you know, again, one of the reasons why you proceed at your own risk when you vote by mail, your uh, ballot is much more likely to be rejected. And while citing the rejection rate not changing from previous elections, despite the increase in vote by mail ballots, that means that the raw number of rejected ballots has increased along with the number of people the increase in the number of people that are using that method to vote. Does that make sense? Am I am I clear on this? I know it gets a little wonky here, <laughs> but there's a certain percentage that are going to be you know, rejected from vote by mail ballots that did not go up. The rate did not go up despite the increase in the number of vote by mail ballots that were used. Right. But that also means because there was more vote by mail vote by mail ballots used, if the, real the percentage number, stays yes. the same, that means a lot more ballots were rejected. Yes, the real number of ballots that were rejected was probably huge. Right. In corresponding with the increase in the use of vote by mail. Stewart confirms, despite the fact that there were double the number of absentee ballots this year, the percentage of absentee ballots rejected was about the same as it was in the past. But yes, that is more ballots. He says, the way I think about these things is that since we doubled the number of absentee ballots, that means there was double the number of people whose votes did not get counted because of something wrong, a missing signature or a signature that election officials decided to say was uh, wrong, didn't match. Technical issues, not because the person was not a valid voter. Nonetheless, Charles Stewart says, at least from this other perspective, it wasn't all that bad. Even so, Stewart and Burden both want to investigate why a handful of states had rejection rates 
that appeared to far exceed the national average of about 0.8%. And despite what you might think, they were not uh, in all so-called red states. Uh, Arkansas re rejected 6.4%. Yes, that's a red state. New Mexico is not necessarily a red state at all. They rejected 5% of their absentee ballots. New York rejected 3.6%. Mississippi, 2.3%, according to the EAC data. Burden, however, cautioned against drawing uh, conclusions too quickly, noting that uh, he, he said he does, does have concern that the data here are still a little hinky. In his words, not all of the states reported what share of absentee ballots were rejected. A couple mm. of them reported data sets that were not complete. So we don't know. But looking at those numbers, there is reason to be concerned in several of those states. And again, it's something that we have not gotten to look at because we've been distracted by so much other crap going on, like the president of the United States, the former president, trying to actually steal the election. Yeah, attempted coups will do that. Stewart said that uh, he wants uh, to better understand why states like Washington and Oregon and Colorado, which have long had universal vote by mail, they still continue to have rejection rates on their ballots right around the national average. Uh, Stewart said one percent uh, rejection rate is pretty high. And it is, particularly in a states in, in these states like Washington, Oregon and Colorado, who have been doing vote by mail for years. You would think they would get that down. One percent actually turns out to be quite a large number of ballots. And again, one of the reasons, uh, you know, one of the widely, wildly unreported reasons that I am not a fan of vote by mail unless it is absolutely necessary. Burden said, I think that the average American hears about in, in the press, uh, what the average American hears about in the press is partisan disagreements over whether there was fraud or whether there was going to be another audit in some state. He said one way to rebuild confidence of some voters is to remind them of how wonderful the election was. Well, I don't know if wonderful is the word that <laughs> I would use personally here, uh, but as noted, the larger point here at least, is that the data, at least as it exists right now from the EAC, 10 months out after the 2020 election, is that there are still zero signs of anything particularly amiss, anything that is really any different from previous elections as we have seen them, as I have been reporting pretty much since Election Day, as I've looked at you know, just about every goddamn claim there is out there that this election was in some way stolen. Nope, there were problems. There are problems every year, but nothing this year looked any more unusual than anything else. And the EAC report generally seems to confirm that all of the phony lawsuits and the clownish, unprofessional, untransparent so-called audits and calls for more of them around the country and the false claims that the election was stolen. All of that still has zero evidence to support these wild claims of an election theft, despite the 2020 election actually being much more closely scrutinized in virtually every regard than any election that I have covered in my nearly 20 years now on this beat. I mean, if there is still nothing, literally zero of note to even suggest that the election was stolen from Donald Trump this many months 
later after the election with this much money spent on it, looking into it, all of these eyeballs looking at it, you know, rather than looking at that, frankly, rather than where they should have been looking, which I hope to cover a bit in the weeks ahead. But, you know, if after all of this, there is almost, you know, zero evidence, not almost zero, zero evidence well, then there is almost certainly zero reason to believe that the election was stolen. Sorry, Trump fans. And frankly, uh, sorry, election integrity fans who believe that there must be something uh, hinky about these elections, despite any evidence to underscore that. On the other hand, there was an attempt to steal the election just not by Joe Biden or his supporters. Donald Trump tried desperately in every possible way, using every lever of the federal government and everything else that he tried to control to, yes, try and steal the election. Now, thankfully, he's a failure at pretty much everything, and he didn't get away with it, but it is not for lack of trying. And we, and by we, I mean everyone, everyone in the media, everyone in the public, everyone else uh, discussing what happened in 2020 need to stop describing what happened on election and since then as an attempt to question the results or an attempt to reverse the election results. This was, and for many people, frankly, still is, even today, a blatant, unapologetic, not very well hidden attempt to steal, outright, to steal the 2020 presidential election. And that attempt was headed up by the president of the United States himself. That is it. Donald Trump tried to steal the 2020 election. And all of the efforts that we are still seeing today from the, uh, the, the the terror attack on the U.S. Capitol in January to the phony lawsuits to the phony so-called post-election forensic audits, all of that are in that pursuit, the pursuit of stealing the 2020 election, period. Tried to reverse, you know, questioning the results, claiming the results were fraudulent, etc. That is far too generous for what happened here and to some extent is still happening before our very eyes. And yet, you know, our very polite mainstream media, which does not like to be, you know, brash and impolitic, you know, they're questioning the results. Here's the deal. Donald Trump tried to steal the 2020 election, period, end of story. He did not get away with it, but he tried like crazy. And a few million of his supporters joined that effort and are still carrying out that mission today. Luckily, they all sucked at it, certainly on the presidential level. And they are finally, finally beginning to be held, just beginning to be held accountable for it. It's a long process, but it is now underway and it is now beginning to bear fruit. And I'm very happy about that. Looking at the news over the past 24 hours or so, I'm seeing one story after another after another of accountability for not only what Trump did in, yes, trying to steal the election, but for so much more in his final year as a failed president. I know it's aggravating and we want to see everything happen faster. I, I share your uh, your feelings on that. 
It is maddeningly too slow sometimes, but accountability is happening. And I still see that as very good news, and I want to highlight a bit of that today. Accountability rising. Let's start in Michigan, where, as we reported last month, a federal judge held an hours and hours long hearing with top Trump attorneys who had sued to try and, yes, steal the election by claiming that they wanted to overturn the results in that state and in others, even though nothing, zero, has come to light to show that Joe Biden did not win legitimately in Michigan by about 150,000 votes. The hearing before the federal judge last month uh, was to allow the Trump attorneys, whose lawsuit had been dismissed for lack of any legitimate F evidence of fraud whatsoever, it was uh, the hearing was to allow them at least to make their case to the judge as to why she shouldn't sanction them for the incredibly bad faith effort. The case uh, they made to the judge last month was apparently as bad or worse than the case that they filed to try and steal the election in the first place originally before that case was tossed out for a complete lack of merit. A federal judge in Michigan on Wednesday night ordered sanctions to be levied against nine pro-Trump lawyers, including Sidney Powell and L. Lynn Wood, ruling that a lawsuit laden with conspiracy theories that they filed last year uh, was, quote, a historic and profound abuse of the judicial process, unquote. In her decision, Judge Linda V. Parker of the Federal District Court in Detroit ordered, ordered the lawyers to pay the attorney's fees incurred by the city of Detroit and by the state of Michigan in defending against their baseless lawsuit and, most importantly, to be referred, these attorneys, to their own local legal authorities in their home states for possible suspension or disbarment. That is a very serious penalty that will likely result in the loss of the livelihoods at least they hope, for these nine unbelievably irresponsible lawyers. Officers of the court. Declaring that the uh, lawsuit should never have been filed, Judge Parker wrote in her scathing 110-page order that it was, quote, one thing to take on the charge of vindicating rights associated with an allegedly fraudulent election, but another to, quote, deceive a federal court and the American people into believing that their rights were infringed. This is what happened here, she wrote. The Michigan lawsuit was filed late in December. It was one of four legal actions collectively known as the Kraken lawsuits. Release the Kraken. By the way, didn't the Kraken, didn't, wasn't this a big thing in that dumb movie? Yes. What was it? What was the, uh, it's a giant sea monster uh, that destroys a city. Do you remember the name of the movie? I Clash of the Titans. Clash of the Titans. Release the Kraken. And then the Kraken is like destroyed five minutes later. The Kraken turns out to be a little tiny worm. Yes, exactly. Uh, anyway, when uh, Sidney Powell said she was going to release these Kraken lawsuits, oh, it was all going to be over around the country. She falsely claimed and without evidence that uh, tabulation machines made by Dominion voting systems were tampered with by a bizarre set of characters like George Soros, uh, Venezuelan intelligence agents, and, oh, and the late president of Venezuela, Hugo Chavez, which, by the way, I proudly take credit for, given that her claims about Hugo Chavez were taken completely out of context, out of my own original, exclusive, and accurate reporting 
about 10 years ago on a company that was once tied to Chavez a decade ago and has since been purchased by Dominion. So, yes, you have me to blame or to thank for that, as you, however you may see it, for all of her embarrassing claims about dead Hugo Chavez having stolen the election for Joe Biden. Uh, in the suits, uh, she complained without merit that all of those conspirators... Uh, began a complicated, covert plot to digitally flip votes from Donald Trump to Joe Biden, even though there is zero evidence, and she never had any to support that claim. And on Wednesday, all of those attorneys got absolutely slammed for it in a hopefully career-destroying way by the federal judge. So uh, just to be clear, among the uh, uh, nine of these uh, lawyers the consequences for them, uh, you know, let me just make them slightly more famous than they were already uh, from the according to the judge. It is further ordered that the clerk of the court shall send a copy of this decision to the Michigan Attorney Grievance Commission and the appropriate disciplinary authorities for the jurisdictions where each attorney is admitted, referring the matter for investigation, possible suspension or disbarment. She cites Sidney Powell in Texas, L. Lynn Wood in Georgia, Emily Newman in Virginia, Julia Z. Haler in uh, D.C., in Maryland, in New York and New Jersey, Brandon Johnson in D.C., New York and Nevada. Scott Hagerstrom in Michigan, Howard Kleinhandler in New York and New Jersey, Gregory Roll in Michigan, and Stephanie Lynn uh, Huntilla, I think, uh, in in Michigan. All of those attorneys should now have to uh, have their records looked at by their local bar associations and potentially revoked for good. And frankly, uh, with this <laughs> with this just excoriating, blistering uh, opinion, 110 pages from this judge, I don't see how uh, they can avoid being having their licenses at the very least suspended and hopefully permanently disbarred. Uh, so uh, some accountability happening there. Oh, and by the way, the, the judge also uh, ordered uh, the nine attorneys uh, named there to receive 12 hours of legal education, six of which will focus specifically on election law. And uh, they could face possible further action, of course, in the individual states in which they practice. The entire thing was a fraud. Not the evidence that was uh, given in. In fact, in the case of the evidence... Even uh, 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 Sidney Powell, who is facing a $1.3 billion defamation lawsuit in response to that lawsuit, she's written to say that, well, you know, her statements about the 2020 election were, quote, opinion that, quote, reasonable people would not accept as fact. Even though they're coming from a lawyer, even though they're included in an official uh, filing in a lawsuit. Really? Yes, really. She really tried that one. Judge Parker says it's not acceptable to support a lawsuit with opinions which were, quote, inexact, exaggerated and hyperbole, as Powell tried to describe what she had to say about this election. So uh, this is just the latest setback and the earliest of consequences for the embattled uh, group of lawyers who emerged from the post-election period as diehard supporters for Donald Trump. So diehard that they were willing to blow up their own career in order to not stop the steal, but to support the steal, to try to make the steal a reality for Donald Trump. 
As noted, Dominion ultimately sued Powell and Rudy Giuliani for defamation, along with uh, Pillow empresario Mike Lindell. They are all facing $1.3 billion lawsuits from Dominion. Rudy Giuliani has had his law license suspended in both New York and D.C., that may be he may be uh, permanently disbarred as well. So, you know, there is at least some accountability, some idea of what it looks like for attempting to steal a presidential election. But it is just the tip of the iceberg. Frankly, I believe there is much more to come. Uh, on Thursday, a group of seven Capitol police officers filed a lawsuit accusing Former President Donald Trump and nearly 20 members of far-right extremist groups of political and, and political organizations of a plot to disrupt the peaceful trans, transition of power during the Capitol riot on January 6th. Yes, that, too, was part of the attempt to steal the 2020 election. And it would be nice if New York Times and the others started reporting it as such as we now will. I promise you, the suit implicates uh, members of the Proud Boys, the Oath Keepers, militia, also Trump associates like Roger Stone. And according to The Times, arguably this suit is the most expansive civil effort to date, seeking to hold Trump and his allies legally accountable for the storming of the Capitol. And yes, their attempt to steal the 2020 election. While three other similar lawsuits were filed in recent months, the suit on Thursday was the first to allege that Trump worked in concert with these far-right extremist groups and political organizers promoting his baseless lies that the presidential election was marred by fraud. Several police officers who served during the Capitol riot, who filed, uh, seven of which filed this lawsuit today, Several of them have come forward with stories of the insults and the injuries that they faced that day. Most prominently, we recall the congressional hearing in July. But the uh, the lawsuit filed in federal district court in D.C. was the first time that these particular seven plaintiffs offered details of their ordeals. One of the officers, for example, was helping to secure the Senate when a mob of rioters broke in, shoved him, beat him, hurled racial slurs at him. According to the lawsuit, another officer was caught in a melee on the west front steps of the Capitol, where, according to the suit, rioters pelted him with batteries, doused him with mace and bear spray, causing his eyes to swell shut. But I'm sure that Trump and his supporters will be outraged to hear about this, right? Because they, you know, back the blue. Am I right? Right wingers? Who pretend to back the blue? What? You don't actually give a damn about cops either? That that was nothing more than a, the, you know, part of the Republican right wing sloganeering to win votes? They don't actually mean any of it? No, they don't, obviously, or they would be outraged. Uh, the suit contends that Trump and his co-defendants violated the Ku Klux Klan Act of 1871, uh, that includes protections against violent conspiracies that interfere with congressional constitutional duties. It also accuses the defendants of committing, quote, bias motivated acts of terrorism in violation of D.C. law. The use of civil uh, civil litigation to hold Trump and many in his orbit accountable for the events 
of January 6th has taken place, even as the DOJ has undertaken the largest criminal investigation in its history into the Capitol attack. And the U.S. House Select Committee on the January 6th attack has opened its own bipartisan inquiry into the riot. Well, on Wednesday, uh, they made far-reaching document requests for more accountability, yes, to eight different federal agencies for detailed records of Trump's movements and his meetings and his phone calls and everything he did on the day of the attack and in the months prior and following it. And I suspect you will be happy to know that Trump is absolutely livid about those document requests today. Womp. Womp. Former President Trump accused the House committee investigating the January 6th attack of trying to, quote, distract, distract, distract from what? <laughs> distract with its latest record uh, request for records. In a statement issued through his Save America PAC, Trump slammed the, quote, leftist select committee for asking for documents and communications from his administration as part of the probe, which he went on to call a partisan scam and a waste of taxpayer dollars. Well, he should know about both of those things. In this case, the partisan scam also includes partisan Republicans on the committee. You know, that well-known leftist Liz Cheney, for example, <laughs> And Illinois Congressman Adam Kinzinger, the uh, former president, further said the, quote, partisan exercise will come at the, quote, expense of longstanding legal principles of privilege, adding that executive pri privilege will be defended. Good luck with that, sir. He said executive privilege will be defended not just on behalf of my administration and the patriots who worked beside me but on behalf of the office of the president of the United States and the future of the nation, which you know he cares about a lot. Earlier on Wednesday, the committee sent letters to a whole bunch of agencies, including the FBI, the DHS, National Archives, where the White House records are all kept. Good luck blocking the release of those documents, Trump, especially when you ain't president anymore, despite attempting to steal it. And uh, with the DOJ saying they have no problem at all with such requests. The panel asked for, quote, all documents and communications related to efforts, plans or proposals to contest the 2020 election results, actually to steal them. The committee also asked for records of any conversations about whether Trump planned to enact martial law and if there were any plans to remove him from office. So lots more fun in the days ahead as those records begin to be produced. All right, let's take a break here. I know I'm running late. I was trying to decide whether to come back with some horrible, sad COVID-related stories or some more stories on accountability today because there's a whole lot of them. Some uh, involved with Trump's theft to or attempted theft to steal the presidency, but others as well. And you know what I decided, Desi Doyen? What? More accountability. Oh, accountability is good. That's straight ahead on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't touch that dial. Hey, this is Brad. Our nightmare election may be over, but new ones are on the way. Here at the Bradcast and Bradblog.com, we fight for election integrity all year around, like no other media outlet in the nation. But of course, we need your help to help us remain on your public airwaves and completely 
independent. Please help us continue that fight over your public airwaves by stopping by bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Baby, welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from Bradblog.com. Too much, too much encouraging news uh, on today's show, uh, which don't we'll worry, also, we'll, we'll change that later. No, no, we won't. We got the Green News Report coming up with far too much good news. True, in it. true. You're going to ruin our brand, is all I'm saying <laughs> with uh, today's Green News Report. That's coming up momentarily. Uh, but this uh, this one is sort of related to Trump's attempt to steal the election in 2020, in this case, by ginning up attacks uh, and physical violence. And in this case, an attempted kidnapping of the governor of Michigan in order to try and steal that state last year. Well, a lot of accountability in Michigan uh, uh, this week between Judge Parker uh, holding the lawyers accountable and now this story. On Wednesday, the first accountability for one of the attempted terrorists, which does not bode well, by the way, for the other terrorists in this clan. The first sentencing in the plot to kidnap Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer last year was handed down on Wednesday afternoon. Ty Garbin. A 25-year-old airplane mechanic was sentenced to 75 months, that is more than six years, in prison for charges of providing material support for terrorist acts and felony firearms charges. He will then serve three years of supervised uh, release uh, and has also been fined $2,500. And uh, this, this one, who was just sentenced to more than six years in prison, he's the one who's cooperating with law enforcement wow. in this deal. Garbin initially pleaded not guilty to the charges. He changed his plea, cooperated with investigators within weeks of being arrested. According to the AP, uh, he willingly uh, put a, quote, target on his back to begin his own re redemption, say um, uh, the prosecutors in their court filing from the Department of Justice. Prosecutors had asked the judge to take Garbin's cooperation into consideration during sentencing. His uh, defense attorney asked the judge to uh, take into account his Garbin's life both before and after the conspiracy. Not only did he not have a criminal record prior to the plot, but he suffered psychological, physical and emotional abuse by his father all his life. According to his attorney, that, uh, he said, predisposed him to, quote, becoming swept up in a group such as that charged in the current indictment. In, additional, uh, in addition, Garbin has accepted responsibility for his actions, has testified twice, including in front of the grand jury, in support of the indictment that got him indicted, according to his attorney. Prosecutors say uh, that, in fact, Garbin, quote, filled in a lot of gaps in the investigation, the uh, testimonies included uh, multiple debriefings, hours of interviews in which he uh, answered all of the questions that were asked of him. He is now likely to be a star witness in the uh, trials going forward to his compatriots, according to prosecutors. Thirteen other men have been charged in this scheme for orchestrating a plot to kidnap Governor Whitmer, a Democrat. 
which was thwarted by the FBI back in October. The men had also planned a paramilitary operation that included sinister plots to execute government officials, to storm the state capitol building with explosives, send bombs codenamed cupcakes, according to the FBI. Whitmer, for her part, correctly blamed then-President Donald Trump for stoking hate in the country and specifically in Michigan, where he uh, called for liberating Michigan because Whitmer dared to institute uh, science based uh, mask mandates across Michigan to try to keep residents alive. Whitmer later described the plot against her as, quote, shocking. She said, quote, it really is something that is so personal and so serious. If you heard this fact pattern and you are describing something like ISIS, you would not be surprised, she said. But this is happening right here in the United States of America. That, she said, is domestic terrorism. It certainly is. Maybe we would have noticed it rising had we not been spending uh, 20 years in places like Afghanistan. Domestic terrorism, I should add, that was instigated by the former disgraced president of the United States. More accountability here, not for Trump, but for, um, well, one of the folks I'm sure he was rooting for. A federal appeals court declined to overturn the conviction and death sentence of the man who killed nine black church congregants in a racist shooting spree at the Emanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church in Charleston, South Carolina in 2015. The avowed white supremacist, who is now 27 years old, is the first person to be handed a death sentence for committing a federal hate crime. And while I am glad to see that he is being held accountable, life in prison would have been sufficient. We do, you know, we we need to do away with this, the, the death penalty, the idea of our government killing people, period, could do without that. Uh, Nonetheless, his sentence has been upheld and another Republican elected official who, in this case, thought he could get away with actually killing a man. South Dakota Attorney General Jason Ravensborg, who was accused of fatally striking a pedestrian with his car on a highway in the middle of the night and abandoning the body last September. He's going to take a plea deal instead of going to trial. His trial was set to begin today. He was set to plead, uh, 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 well, as we go to air anyway, he's set to plead no contest to two of the three traffic misdemeanor charges that state prosecutors had handed him uh, after their investigation into the crash, that according to Vanity Fair. But the attorney general, yes, the state's attorney general, who is still the state's attorney general, by the way, he was charged with careless driving and proper lane change and operating a vehicle while using a mobile device. The, the widow of the victim said uh, in February that she plans to sue Ravensborg for wrongful death. And her case just got a lot better, I suspect, with the guilty plea by the South Dakota attorney general who is still serving in that role today, even after killing a man and running from it. South Dakota's Governor Kristi Noem and uh, state lawmakers, some of whom pushed an impeachment effort against Ravensborg, Uh, They've called on the AG to resign. And if Kristi Noem is willing to call for the resignation of a Republican official, well, you know it's bad. On the other hand, it sounds like he should probably consider running for the Senate or the White House at this point as a Republican. In other rogue state attorney general news, 
One of my favorites, Texas Ken, uh, Texas's Attorney General Ken Paxton, who, incredibly enough, is still Attorney General of Texas and running for a third term next year, in theory, despite having been charged years ago with multiple felony counts of securities fraud for which he has still not gone to trial. And despite having filed one of those phony Kraken lawsuits at the U.S. Supreme Court last year trying to steal last year's elections, which... Uh, even this stolen U.S. Supreme Court tossed out. Why hasn't he had his license to practice law revoked yet? Well, it might be. The Texas Bar Association uh, is said to be considering exactly that. But that's not all that he's in trouble for. Last year, seven of his own top very right wing staffers in his own office, they all quit en masse. And they filed a federal criminal complaint with the FBI charging that the Texas AG had been involved in a bribery and abuse of power scheme, including payoffs to top donors, uh, payoffs to the guy who also reportedly gave a job to Paxton's own mistress. On those charges, however, you will be happy to hear that the still serving Texas attorney general has now been cleared of all charges. Not by the FBI, which is supposedly still investigating them, but by the Texas Attorney General. Yes, that's right. Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton has now finished investigating himself for alleged corruption, and he's happy to report he did not do it. Well, that's that. Quote from the report, A.G. Paxton's actions were lawful and consistent with his legal duties and prior actions taken by Attorneys General of Texas. A.G. Paxton committed no crime. A.G. Paxton's office concluded in a 374-page internal report. It was unsigned by any actual people, but it was published by the Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton's office on official Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton letterhead, fully exonerating Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton. So you know it's legit. Nevertheless, for reasons I can't possibly understand, the FBI is said to still be investigating Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton. Much more accountability news. We'll have to wait for another day, I'm afraid. But the accountability continues and I think will continue to continue as far as I can (laughs) tell. Nonetheless, we've got Green News Report to get to with entirely too much encouraging news, which will, as I suggested, not look good for our brand, Desi (laughs) Doyen. That's straight ahead on the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman. The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100% independent, 100% listener supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. Please drop by bradblog.com donate. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. All right, Desi Doyen, before uh, we get to the entirely too encouraging Green News report today, uh, some not encouraging news about weather in the days ahead. Correct. Everybody on the Gulf Coast, heads up. There looks like there's going to be a very quick potential hurricane brewing right now that could hit you over the weekend, possibly Sunday, Monday, Tuesday. Not a lot of time to prepare, so get ready. Hurricane Ida 
it will be called, uh, if, if it happens, uh, sort of whipped up from uh, out of nowhere, pretty much. All right, let's get to it. Our latest Green News report. This is going to be the last chance for a decade, probably, for anything big at the federal level to happen. So the stakes are enormous. Crunch time for climate action as House Democrats advance budget reconciliation blueprint. More than 220 people were killed and dozens of buildings were destroyed in what's being described as a once-in-400-year event. Yep, man-made global warming made Europe's catastrophic flooding much more catastrophic. Plus, good news for breathers in Louisiana. Officials put brakes on construction of massive plastic factory. All of those stories and more straight ahead from Bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. There's also a funding for electric school buses. And to make it even more environmentally friendly, the bullies will shoot spitballs at you with paper straws. <laughs> Well, that seems right. This is your Green News Report. And the wedgies will be gluten-free. Okay, Tizzy Doyen, crunch time indeed as we get closer and closer to this massive infrastructure package, which, yeah, I think it's going to pass. Well, we shall see. House Democrats this week narrowly approved that $3.5 trillion budget reconciliation blueprint, the next step in the arduous process of advancing President Biden's ambitious agenda to expand the social safety net and climate action. Well, I didn't say it was going to be easy. I just said it's going to pass. The smaller bipartisan infrastructure bill will get a House vote by late September. But now the House must write the budget legislation, which Senate Democrats can pass with a simple majority vote. That means that it really is crunch time for climate. That's according to energy journalist David Roberts of the Volt newsletter on a recent broadcast. Roberts says that public pressure can ensure the inclusion of two key proposals to clean up the electric grid, a national clean electric standard and clean energy tax credits that energy analysts say will accelerate decarbonization in transportation and buildings. If you move the other two big chunks of emissions over onto the electricity grid, then you see, oh, having a clean electricity grid is the core strategy for decarbonization. This is the sector that's going to clean up all the other sectors. And it will be a very big deal when and if this bill passes. In other news, an extreme event attribution study of the catastrophic European floods in July has concluded that, yes, man-made global warming boosted both the likelihood and the severity of the rains that caused the deadly flooding that killed at least 220 people in Germany and Belgium alone. Scientists at the World Weather Attribution Network found that the flood event was made up to nine times more likely than it would have been without man-made climate change. One river Basin might have seen a 1 in 15,000 year event. You know, it was an unbelievable flooding event, just wiped out really entire towns, and we've already moved on to the next disaster, the next dozen or so. Speaking of, 
Here in the U.S., nine national forests have been closed due to wildfires in the exceptionally hot and dry west. Officials warn that California's monstrous Caldor Fire is on the verge of threatening the Lake Tahoe Basin. And in Minnesota, officials have ordered a temporary emergency closure of the popular Boundary Waters Canoe Area Wilderness. Mm. They're evacuating visitors due to three wildfires within its boundaries, fueled by heat, wind, and drought. In Minnesota. But some good news. The Interior Department has raised the pay of nearly all of the federal government's wildland firefighters to $15 an hour. The Federal Aviation Administration has announced $20 million in grants to help airports replace equipment to go from polluting and low-tech to zero-emissions vehicles and electrify equipment that currently relies on fossil fuels. And bonus, it will create construction jobs. More good news. President Biden has nominated Charles Sam's the third for director of the National Park Service. If confirmed, he will be the first Native American ever to lead the National Park Service. That is good news. And finally, in southern Louisiana, in a major win for environmental justice activists and members of the majority black community of St. James Parish, the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers has announced that a truly massive plastics manufacturing plant proposed by Taiwan-based giant Formosa Plastics Group must now undergo a full, formal environmental review. The decision deals a significant blow to the $10 billion project. Environmental groups say if built, the facility would double local toxic air pollution, release greenhouse gas emissions equivalent to three coal-fired power plants every year, and would rank among the largest pollution-generating plastics facilities on the planet. That is good news. Too much good news for the Green News Report. (laughs) Something must have gone wrong. We need to take some time off. For much more on all of those stories, check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Find, follow, and share us planet-wide on the Facebooks and the Twitters at Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. And this has been your Green News Report. Man, I swear something's wrong. Something's wrong! I don't think I'll be around here long. Maybe not. Maybe not. Thank you uh, very much, Desi Doyen. Yeah. A lot of good news there. Are you okay? Are you <laughs> Well, there right? are good things happening. We do try. I do try to yeah. find the good things, well, but they're often crowded out by the really negative things. But like, at least today, yeah. there were a few I could throw yeah, in Yeah, well, like I say, you're giving us a bad name. Knock <laughs> it off, Desi Doyen. All right, we got to get out. My thanks. Of course, to Desi and all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program, you can download it anytime. Share it with your friends, families, and enemies for free at bradblog.com. Hey, while you're there, consider stopping by bradblog.com slash donate to help Desi and I stay on your public airwaves as long as we possibly can and as long as we can stand it and as long as you can stand it. Uh, you can drop me email. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. On the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am the Brad Blog. I will see you there until we see you here next time. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Something's wrong. Man, I swear something's wrong. Something's wrong. I don't think I'll be around here long.